Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial. We invite you to follow us on Twitter at MacArthur1880 or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. Q-ships In the years leading up to World War I, there were lots of theories about what a future war would look like in Europe. One was that a protracted two-front war would not end well for Germany. Another was that the war would be short because the global economy tied all nations to each other and a long war would just be too costly for everyone. Another theory, one which had the backing of Admiral Jackie Fisher, was that Great Britain, an island nation, would not survive if it lost access to food and supplies coming from North America. Concern over this last theory was initially low. The Royal Navy had quickly blockaded Germany and declared the North Sea a war zone meaning any ship traveling in that region was considered a legitimate target. In addition, by January 1915, the Imperial German High Seas Fleet was bottled up in the North Sea. German U-boats, however, were free to prowl and would soon become Germany's primary weapon at sea. Back in October 1914, German U-boats began targeting merchant ships with some success. The British Admiralty initially dismissed these attacks, believing the losses to merchant vessels to be limited. Part of this dismissal stemmed from their belief that German U-boats posed little threat to the Royal Navy's surface fleet. In hindsight, they were correct in predicting that the U-boats would not sink many warships. But this confidence caused them to overlook the danger U-boats would pose to the unarmed merchant vessels that form the transatlantic supply line. International law was another reason for the Admiralty to dismiss the U-boat threat. At the time, U-boats were bound by the same prize rules governing surface raiders. They were supposed to stop merchant ships, board them, search for war materials, and if they found this contraband, they were to evacuate the crew and any passengers to safety, and then sink the vessel. If they didn't find any contraband, the vessel was not a legitimate target. The boarding and searching process was time-consuming and left a surfaced U-boat very vulnerable to attack. Therefore, the Admiralty assumed that the U-boat could not be used to any great advantage against merchant shipping. They could not imagine a U-boat commander going through such a painstaking process and risking his crew like this with any sort of regularity. And if he did, they didn't see such a cumbersome process of raiding being successful often enough to do more than be a minor nuisance. Just as the British were becoming more confident in the limitations of the U-boat, however, the Imperial German Navy, disappointed in the performance of their surface fleet, made the decision to rely more heavily on the U-boat. By early 1915, it was clear that the Royal Navy's blockade was preventing war materials and even food from reaching Germany. Stuck in the dreaded two-front war and feeling the pinch from the blockade, Germany had to do something. Targeting Allied shipping seemed to be a good solution, but Germany's surface raiders had already been taken out of action by the Royal Navy. That left the U-boat an illegal conundrum. International law clearly restricted the natural advantages of the U-boat as a weapon. As with any new frontier or technology, though, when it came to the tension between observing international law and using the U-boat in a more effective way, the need to survive and cripple the enemy won out. And so on February 4, 1915, Germany embarked on a campaign of unrestricted U-boat warfare, 
declaring the zone around the British Isles to be a war zone and any vessels in that area legitimate targets. Nations around the world, not just the Allies, protested this new policy, but Germany viewed this new tactic as a legitimate response in its fight for survival. By March 1915, German U-boats had sunk approximately 29 merchant vessels, all flying the flags of Allied or neutral nations. While successful, though, this campaign would be short-lived. After a few disasters like the sinking of the Lusitania, in September 1915, Germany yielded to international pressure and abandoned its policy of unrestricted U-boat warfare. The U-boats continued to target merchant vessels, though, and with a fair amount of success. Enough that in 1917, desperate to finish off the British, Germany once again resumed unrestricted U-boat warfare. That German leaders believed this policy outweighed the risk of permanently alienating neutral nations gives a clear picture of how successful they had been in targeting merchant vessels. During the war, the Admiralty resorted to a variety of U-boat neutralizers, such as minefields, aerial reconnaissance, and the convoy system, all as a way to contain U-boats or to protect transport and supply ships. These and many other U-boat traps were used to varying degrees of success. One such trap was the Q-ship, named after what was then Queenston, Ireland, the base of the Q-ships. With depth charges still relatively primitive during World War I, the best way for a surface vessel to destroy a U-boat was to ram it or to attack it with gunfire. A U-boat had to surface to be attacked in either of these ways, and to avoid such an attack tended to stay far away from armed ships. Q-ships took advantage of this. They were designed to look like unarmed merchant vessels, basically an easy target that would lure a U-boat into danger. Rather than use its limited supply of torpedoes, a U-boat would generally surface to attack such a target with a deck gun, or send a boarding party aboard to plant explosives. As the U-boat approached, Q-ship crew members were trained to panic on the decks to double down on the impression of being a helpless merchant vessel. Sometimes some of the crew would even abandon the ship to add to the illusion. When the U-boat closed sufficient distance, the Q-ship would then run up the white ensign of the Royal Navy to identify itself as a warship and then pull the panels or other camouflage from its guns and open fire on the U-boat. This wasn't the only way to use a Q-ship, though. If torpedoed before it was able to lure a U-boat into danger, many Q-ships had lightweight cargo of balsa or cork aboard. This would give the vessel added buoyancy and make it very hard to sink, even after a successful torpedo hit. Watching a disabled Q-ship floating helplessly would encourage the U-boat to surface to finish off the vessel with its deck guns. Now, deception at sea was nothing new. In the past, merchant vessels had been painted to look like men of war, bristling with fake guns. By appearing to be a warship, the merchant vessels hoped to avoid run-ins with pirate or enemy vessels. In the case of the Q-ships, however, a warship was being designed to look like a vulnerable merchant vessel in order to invite attack, and then exterminate the attacker. Historians and jurists today sometimes question the legality of the Q-ship, just as they question the legality of unrestricted U-boat warfare. So how effective were the Q-ships? Q-ships sank somewhere between 11 and 14 U-boats during the war. 
This is not a particularly high number, given that there may have been an estimated 366 Q-ships by the end of the war, but as word of the Q-ship spread, U-boats certainly became more cautious, choosing to avoid surfacing to attack. Attacking while submerged slowed the speed of the U-boat, but also forced it to use up its limited supply of torpedoes. This had the side effect of rendering the U-boat less capable of future attacks while on the same mission. As the war went on, Q-ship captains had to be more and more cunning in order to successfully trick the increasingly suspicious U-boats. Critics of the Q-ship argue that Q-ships siphoned off valuable resources in terms of skilled labor and material, but were only really responsible for about 10% of all the U-boats sunk during the war. It is true that more U-boats were lost to mines than to the more expensive Q-ships. It is also true that the use of Q-ships was legally problematic, and certainly encouraged U-boat commanders to be more aggressive in targeting any vessel that presented itself as a merchant vessel. The Q-ships may not have eradicated the U-boat threat, but their creation, and indeed the wide variety of U-boat traps the Admiralty invested in, were all symptomatic of the need to find some way to neutralize the U-boat. Initially dismissed at the start of the war, the U-boat nearly brought Great Britain to her knees during World War I. Just as men like Jackie Fisher had feared, Great Britain's great vulnerability lay in its transatlantic supply lines. Whether operating under a policy of unrestricted U-boat warfare or not, German U-boats sank an estimated 5,000 ships, or roughly 13 million gross registered tonnage. The U-boat strategy was slowly working, and it is therefore understandable why the Admiralty resorted to any number of tactics to neutralize U-boats. They had to do something. The Q-ship campaign might also have had another significant impact. The German response to the Q-ship was to more aggressively target unarmed vessels. In doing so, Germany hampered its ability to win the public relations side of the war, especially in an area that had the potential to influence an important neutral like the United States. While American neutrality was somewhat questionable in some ways, when unrestricted U-boat warfare resumed in 1917, it was certainly one of the factors that drew the United States into World War I on the side of the Allies. This not only strengthened the transatlantic supply line, but contributed to the war's ultimate conclusion. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.